Welcome to the Wealth Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, John Lawson, Senior Wealth Advisor at Asante Wealth Management and founding partner of Sana Family Office. We're always looking for unique ways to educate our families and get in touch with new clients, business owners, and business families. That was part of the reason for kicking off this Wealth Wisdom Podcast. At Sauna Family Office, we help business owners and affluent families navigate the complexities of wealth through a variety of wealth management and family enterprise oversight services. You can visit our website at sauna, S-A-N-A, familyoffice.com. For the purpose of this podcast, though, we wanted to dive deeper into topics that can relate to your goals, your investments, your business, and your life. This week on Wealth Wisdom Podcast, we have Drummond Brodeur, someone with 30 years experience in managing global portfolios and since 2007 as a global strategist as Signature Asset Management. He manages a 50-person team overseeing $50 billion across all asset classes and geographies. So who better to speak to when the most asked question right now seems to be, what does the future look like for the economy and invest? The reason we wanted to talk to Drummond today is to give you the insight directly from a guy who lives, eats, breathes this question every day. Okay, Drummond, well, let's get to it. Uh, please welcome to the podcast, Drummond Brodeur. Uh, we were, pardon the pun, drumming up ways to start the podcast on a loader, uh, lighter note. Uh, and uh, Drummond, what better way to start off than with a drink? Uh, prior to the episode, uh, we asked you to tell us what's your favorite drink. Uh, and uh, just before we started here, you showed me that you had a, a nice glass of red wine. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your uh, favorite drink there? Yeah, no, it's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely a beer and wine guy. Um, and, uh, red wine is definitely uh, a go-to. So, uh, this is a beautiful glass of, uh, Okanagan, uh, sort of uh, red. It's a blend, uh, from, uh, from Pyramid Hill Winery. And, uh, I'll tell you, we've spent the past, uh, several years, my wife and I spending more and more time in the Okanagan and, uh, it's, uh, it's a go-to place for us. And the wines are getting absolutely spectacular out there. So it is something that we enjoy doing and uh, will continue to be doing. I, I actually joined at one point in June uh, during COVID. I had to get my son out to BC. He just graduated from UBC. So we literally drove across the country and spent actually a week in the Okanagan during that time frame. So uh, even in COVID, I find ways to get there. <laughs> That's, I, I, I knew nothing could hold you back on that side. Well, in, enjoy that. Uh, I was talking to uh, Trevor, my communications guy, who has uh, set this up, and I said uh, to him, uh, and, and you're in a better stead than I am for this, but uh, uh, be, being back east in Toronto, uh, uh, you're at least afternoon drinking. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm morning drinking here, and uh, my drink of choice, uh, uh, much to lot, lots of people's surprise, is tequila. Uh, and uh, so I... Uh, just brought one of my favorite uh, go-tos is uh, Hornitos uh, Black Barrel. Um, and so uh, uh, what a great job. Cheers to day drinking. Uh, <laughs> day drinking and breakfast drinking, John. There you go. And thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Uh, so one last question uh, on the lighter side is um, we, we obviously aren't traveling that much uh, these days. So where is it that you'd like to be actually drinking that glass of wine? Uh, and as I sort of uh, kind of alluded to, as I said, I think where, where I would like to be right now, it's right back in the Okanagan. Yeah. And uh, I'd, be, I'd be sitting out on a deck there. Uh, there are some forest fires, but they're down further south. They're not up in Kelowna. The smoke is not there. I spoke to my sister there yesterday. But yeah, I would be, this is a, once again, stellar time of the year. Uh, to be in uh, in the BC Okanagan, and that's where uh, that's where I'd be sitting. This and in the perfect world, John would be sitting there together and uh, comparing notes. Great. Well, cheers, and again, thanks for doing this. Let's uh, let's get to it. But John, where do you usually before we go? Where do you usually drink your tequila? 
particularly when it's a company to a breakfast accompaniment. Where would that, that? There's only one place that could be. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, well. Uh, if if it uh, if it's breakfast, it's at my breakfast table. But no, that doesn't actually happen. Just uh, <laughs> let's be clear on that. Um, the uh, I, I echo your thoughts. So we were actually just up. Uh, my wife and I, Kara, were just up in uh, Kelowna. Uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, as uh, you and I had actually discussed, and uh, we were there with the boys and uh, uh, had a fabulous time. Now, uh, I, actually, another quick note here. Um, you, you may notice that I've got a matching uh, shirt and face. Uh, <laughs> that's not from Kelowna. I actually uh, was golfing with clients yesterday, and it started out quite cloudy. And uh, about two-thirds of the way through, I realized oh my, I should have put on sunscreen. So yeah. Uh, yeah. the theme. Good color. Uh, so uh, let's, let's jump into it. Um, and uh, just really drum and want to uh, tackle or start you off with the three main questions. And uh, uh, they're, they're uh, what I hear most from clients these days. And it's what is the state of the economy? Uh, and with all that's been happening and with all the noise that is going on out there, what is it that really matters? Uh, and what's driving the markets and, and what does all this mean going forward? So that was more than three questions, but I lumped them together to seem like three. Yeah, they're, they're all there. Yeah, no, perfect. And that's, you know, it's, it's getting to, um, the, the, the crux of a lot of, uh, um, you know, confusion, out there in terms of what's going on, because uh, markets, as you know, you keep hearing putting on the news, the markets are hitting all-time highs in the U.S. at least, um, and uh, yet you look around and say things obviously aren't well. What what gives? What's going on? We're in the middle of a pandemic, a global pandemic, and so I, I think it's important to sort of separate what's going on into the two, uh, in what's going on, what's driving the economy, what's driving markets, uh, to help understand and frame uh, of where things are going to go and where they're going to be going for the next little while. So. Um, it's, uh, it's an important to have a, 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 bit, a sense of reference. And so if we start with the econ economic fundamentals, because that is um, ultimately going to drive everything over the long term. And the economic fundamentals are not good. They are, they're quite dire. And I do, uh, as you know, I write a, a quarterly outlook. And the, the title of my outlook on, that I wrote back in, uh, in June was called Bungie Jumping into Recession. And I was really trying to capture the point that the bungee jumping recession concept is this pandemic was an external shock to the system that we basically, it hit the system, we shut the economy down. And so that's sort of like a bungee jump. The economy just went straight down. It wasn't like a normal recession. 2018, by the way, played out in 18 months, 2007, till you got to the sort of the, the, the bust at the bottom. This was overnight, 18 days, zero, straight down by 30%. Uh, but like bungee jumping, when you hit the bottom, you always come up very, very fast. And so that notion that we were going to have a V-shaped recovery, a very fast recovery, starting the day we reopened, we started to reopen, was completely predictable. And I'd written that in the previous articles. So, well, that shouldn't have been a surprise to anyone. But the real issue is that when you bungee jump up, you bounce up, but you come to rest significantly lower than where you started. And I think this is what matters for the economy today is that today the level of economic activity, even though it's bounced hard, is way below we were pre-COVID. And in fact, from an economic perspective, we are now at the start of the recession. So even though the data is getting worse because you're down an unbelievable number from an economic perspective, you turn the economy off, okay? Now the economic recession begins, okay? And when you're looking at a lot of the economic data, it's not gonna make any sense. It doesn't make any sense because there's massive shifts moving, two tectonic shifts. In the US, for reference, you laid off about 30 million people. You shut down the business, sent everybody home, okay? Business is still there, you just shut it down. Everyone goes home, gone. So about 30 million people lost their jobs. When you reopen the business, you call everybody back. And so all of a sudden you get a lot of jobs created. About 42% of the jobs in the US have gone back to work. So you've created, let's call it 15 million jobs in the US. So it's been a tremendous amount of job creation but that's in the context of you lost 30. There's still 15 more to go. And the other thing that happens when the business opens up and it, if it opens up, but a lot of businesses that do open up are finding the customers aren't coming back to the same degree. 
or they're a restaurant that can only have half the number of tables. So all of a sudden business is way down. So they've had capacity up here, they had staff for up here and business is here. That's when, yeah, I temporarily laid you off in March. I called you back. Now I got to let you go. And it's a permanent layoff. And so we have these moving plates in the, going on in the economy where we have massive waves of people, temporary layoffs going back to work. So you're creating a lot of jobs, but at the same time, those businesses that can't survive or that are overstaffed are starting to readjust their cost base to reflect their new reality and permanent layoffs are starting to unfold. In the same token, you're starting to see more bankruptcies. Those are the companies that can't, like, hey, there's no business. I have not survived. My business isn't coming back. And a lot of these are in the, I'm in the travel business and in the leisure business, et cetera. We can all see them and know them. So there's huge pain in parts of the economy that are not coming back. And so right now that with beginning of the recessionary process means permanent layoffs, bankruptcies, insolvencies, et cetera. Those are just going to start. And we're going to be chewing through those for the next several months, quarters, in fact. Uh, and that's a sort of dire outlook. But the economy is not getting worse from where we were in March. We are definitely better from the shutdown, okay? And it's sort of grinding through this uh, and uh, ultimately improving two steps forward. But there's two really big variables that you have to pay attention to that will really influence where we are in three months, six months, 12 months in terms of the economy. And we have to keep in mind that right now, John, like uncertainty is a key watchword. Things are more uncertain than ever before. Uh, and so I can have a projection say we're in a recession, this is where we'll be a year from now, but my confidence level is very minimal in terms of where it is. And what we're trying to look at is certain scenarios, what might influence that trajectory and understand as things develop. The two variables we have to pay attention to, the virus, how that plays out is gonna have a huge implication for how the economy goes, which is obvious. And the short answer on that is it's not going away. We're not gonna have a effective vaccine developed, produced, and, and 8 billion people uh, sort of uh, vaccinated in the coming year. So we are talking about how do we learn to live with the virus uh, going forward. And it'll get better, we'll have better treatments, we'll be able to reduce morbidities, protect people. So there's a lot that science will do before we get to a vaccine that will reduce the ability and help us manage it. So it's not all dire, but it's not going away. So as I said, that and how that plays out, stay tuned, let's pay attention to it. The other big variable we have to pay attention to is really the policy response. What are governments going to do? And the two tools of economic policy that are usually used are monetary policy, what central banks do, uh, and fiscal policy, what governments do in spending. Monetary policy has effectively gone all in. Interest rates down to zero, and they're doing what's called quantitative easing, which is effectively the central banks buying government bonds. They're buying investment grade bonds. These are tools they developed in 2008, expanding their balance sheet, printing money, buying bonds, and they're deploying that in large fashion. Um, and we'll continue to do so. And we can, we can talk more detail. There's a lot for the monetary policy nerds out there to get into that's really exciting. Um, but uh, as I say, most of the people are not monetary policy nerds. So it's as fascinating as I find it. Um, so that's gonna remain main stimulus and the evolution of that policy will matter in Canada, in the US, in Europe. So you do have to stay on top of all those developments. The other policy response that has been totally spectacular in the past few months is fiscal policy, government spending of money. And in the US context as well, fiscal spending in the downturn, they spent about, the first act, CARES Act was about $3 trillion. $3 trillion, John, that's a lot of money. You can buy a lot of tequila for $3 trillion, trust me, okay? And if for reference, the US economy is about, a call it a $20 trillion economy for uh, you know, it, it, close enough. And that means you're talking that spending in about a three, four month period, short period of time, was about 15% of GDP. Okay, so the economy collapsed. The role of that spending was basically to replace the income from the households and the businesses that basically lost their income. Because if you didn't replace their income, and those businesses go bust, those households go uh, bust, can't pay their rent, you're basically tipping into a depression. Okay. So it was expediency, get money, bridge these businesses and households until we can reopen the economy and start again. So it was necessary. The counterfactual would have made the, the Great Depression back in the 30s look relatively minor. So, uh, you know, job well done. It was done expediently. It was a little overdone. So like when you have an operation, you know, to keep protected from the pain, they have to give you a lot of morphine and drugs. 
Okay, they've overdeed a bit and stuff. So you actually saw in the US, for instance, uh, personal income in, went up about, I think it was about 16% or something uh, in the US, even as you know, unemployment skyrocketed, 30 million people lost their job, yet overall household income rose, all fiscal transfers. Uh, and so that's been a big support to the economy. Hey, sorry to interrupt you there, but uh, oh. I actually remember that you, you have an analogy, you slightly touched on it there, um, but uh, uh, that your analogy to an operation, uh, yeah. I thought that was brilliant. Um, can you just go back through that again and just right from the part where, uh, yeah. Yeah. uh, in, into ER with the heart attack, major heart yeah, attack. Exactly. And that's like the, uh, that is exactly, I think it's a great analogy because it captures, um, really what's going on. And it, it, it's, it's, it's from an economic context it's like you all of a sudden have a massive heart attack. Okay. It happens quickly. You're down, you're dead. Okay. And it's basically get this guy into the ER slice them open, get to the heart, get it pumping again. And it's not about nice disease, let's slice them up nicely and uh, you know, make sure that it is everything. It's like rip them open, restart the heart and get it going. And when it's successful, that's awesome. You get the heart done, you fix it up. Now you have to patch the guy up. It's wires, it's stitching, etc. cetera. Uh, and you know, when this guy, he's alive, which is awesome, he survived. He's going to be in a lot of pain on the other side of this operation when he wakes up from the anesthesia. And so you pump him full of that painkillers. You put that meds into him. The morphine starts flowing. Okay. And that morphine is to protect you from the pain. And that's what the stimulus is. The economy was shut down. We literally turned it off and we started pumping in the meds to support the system, keep it alive. And the neat thing is when you actually wake up in the operating room, okay, A, you're thankful to be alive. This is awesome. You shake off the grogginess from the anesthesia and you feel fantastic. There's a, this, I'm ready to get up and walk out of here. This is good because you've never been so high in your life with all those drugs. Okay, You ain't fantastic, but you feel it. And so you feel great uh, and think that's fantastic. And then the drugs start to wear off. They start to reduce the dosages. And that's when it begins to hurt. That's when you start to feel the pain. Okay, and that's when you realize the rehab ahead is going to be a long, slow slog. Okay, you're going to need more painkillers, but they're not going to give you what they had, they're going to be tapered down. That's exactly John, it's where we are today. It's a fiscal taper. We spent three trillion in the first uh, in, in March in the US to try and pump that support the economy as they came up. Like the UI program, there was $600 a week. If you were on unemployment insurance and they expanded the definition for that, you got $600 a week on top of the regular UI. That meant over half the people on unemployment insurance were making more money unemployed than they were when they were working. Okay, so it's awesome. So all of a sudden you've been sent home, you get an extra $600 a week. Uh, and no kidding, this is driving some of the day, day trade. They can't go to Vegas, they can't go gambling. This Robin Hood effect you may have read about or hear about day trade. This is driving part of it because you basically sent them home with a bunch of money. Okay, so it's driving a lot of things. It's keeping the economy very liquid and very afloat, but that program was temporary and that UI program, for instance, expired at the end of July. So the last checks went out July 25th. So it's been almost a month at the US and there's still 30 million, uh, 28 million people today in the US receiving some sort of unemployment uh, support. It's still a massive number. Okay, and as I say, that number, that, those checks were running is somewhere between 15 and $18 billion a week that the government was sending out to it as a replacement income. And that stopped end of July. So we're now on for about a, uh, a month that those checks have not been going out. We expected there would be a renewal of the program, maybe tapered down, so maybe not as big. The Democrats passed a $3 trillion package, so kind of the same. The Senate, the, the Republicans in the Senate sort of uh, approved a $1 trillion package, so a significant scale back. Uh, and then we figured they'd settle somewhere around one and a half in uh, early August before they went on recess. And politics being what it is, they did not. Okay, so they basically agreed to nothing, uh, which means that, that fiscal tapering, you're not getting your meds, the pain is sort of ramping up bit by bit as the support wears off. Uh, and so we think, I still think there will be some sort of policy support coming into September uh, at some point in time, because you have A, you have the economy needs it, B, there's an election coming up. So, you know, who's against spending money into an election? But as I say, staying on top of what actually is it going to be 1 trillion, 
one and a half, two, three trillion, the size of those stimulus packages will influence where the economy is and what the economic outlooks are. And that applies, as I say, in the US, which is the biggest economy I'm talking about, but equally Canada, Europe, uh, Asia, every, you know, following the role of fiscal policy and its trajectory forward will be a significant contributor to economic outcomes uh, in, uh, in the coming, uh, coming quarters and coming years. So as I, that will be a big driver, but as you taper it, as I say, I think we still have quite some time before we actually see economic, broad economic activity, getting back to levels we were pre-COVID. So we're still in a recessionary state. We're still got the meds coming on, um, but we'll, we'll work through this and we'll be chopping through this as we go through uh, the end of this year and into 2021, dependent on the policy and the virus dance that, uh, that plays out. But it's not a strong overall outlook that was in the U.S. context. I can go globally, but it's also the same thing. Growth is slower. So, okay. so Drummond, with that, if if somebody just listens to you right there, they may want to take that bottle of wine from you and drink more. Healing um, now. The uh, but what we're seeing in the markets is doesn't seem to be reflective as to that outlook so talk speak to that if you could yeah and that's and that's where it's important to understand you know what's driving mm -hmm. markets versus what's driving uh driving the economy and there's two main factors or two main buckets that i'd point to that sort of uh, uh sort of matter in terms of the market terms that isn't necessarily reflected in the economic fundamental and so it's kind of a battle that's going on right now that first battle is kind of the economic fundamentals versus what I call financial repression. Central banks have taken interest rates to zero. And financial repression is a term we use, John, when we're talking about interest rates being below the level of inflation. Okay, so when interest rates are lower than inflation, so if you're getting 2% uh, inflation and interest rates are 50 basis points, half a point, that's a called a negative real interest rate of 1.5%, because you're losing the purchasing power of your money over time. And so the central bank policy action is that we without going into the details of why they've pushed interest rates to zero and they've done a lot that sort of says we are going to cement interest rates down here at lower levels and push them below the level of inflation for the next decade. So that is their objective successfully. We want to keep interest rates below inflation and over the next decade, which means if you're sitting owning money, sitting with money in the bank, owning government bonds, they are telling you, that is their, their objective, basically, that you are going to lose money, that they want to take your money away, confiscate it at about a 1%, 1.5% a year for the next decade. We don't know if they'll be successful or not. We can go into that. But that's what financial repression is. Very, very low interest rates. And ultimately, it is a confiscation of people's savings to, bet to the benefit of the creditors. And so if you think of how are we going to pay for some of this debt, this is one plank of the basis. Basically, if you have to pay down a lot of debt, it's like, uh, you know, what some say, why do you rob the banks? It's because that's where the money is. So, well, you know, if I, if I have a whole lot of debt and I'm the government and I got to pay it down, well, I should go rob who has the money. And that's called your clients. That's called savers. Okay. And that is what, when negative interest rates are, you are literally confiscating, not at a big amount, you're just chipping away at it. You think one, one and a half percent a year that uh, you're taking away to pay it down. So that financial repression is one driver that's in the markets. That with interest rates zero, it makes the value of other assets more valuable. Okay, so companies, if interest, the alternative is interest rates, and we use in, in, in financial markets discount rates to discount future cash flows. So if you're getting a dollar a year for 10 years, how much is that worth? And if I can, if interest rates are 10%, and I can get, you know, on $100, I can get $10 in one year, then $10 over 10 years, not worth a whole lot of money. Um, but if the interest rate is a whole lot less, you know, then it's going to be, you know, if it's worth one, 10 to one, it's going to be, I'm going to be indifferent, more or less. So a lower interest rate supports higher valuations. And that's part of what is driving the markets is that low interest rates will support valuations in the market uh, and, uh, and help drive, uh, drive them higher. And in part, because there's no interest. I was reading in, literally in today's Globe and Mail, there's uh, on the uh, business section, it's talking about the um, Ontario's teacher pension plan, one of the biggest pension plans in the world, one of the biggest money managers has just cut their holdings of government bonds in half. So they basically over the past few months sold half of all their government bonds. Now we're talking billions and billions. 
because government bonds today aren't giving them any income. They need income. They need to earn a CPI plus a three or 4% over time. So inflation plus three or 4% is what most pension plans, pension plans, insurance companies, long-term money is trying to achieve. Like, in other words, a return over inflation. So if a government bond is inflation, uh, you're getting inflation minus uh, sort of uh, uh, one, so you're actually getting a negative uh, sort of uh, real rate of return. Pension plans said, I can't meet my objective. I don't want to own those. So government bonds for a lot of purposes can't do what they used to do when they used to pay you five, 6%. You put money in the government bond, put it in a GIC, you get 5%, awesome. Today, you put it and it just loses money slowly every day. So that, there, not a lot of alternatives is part of what's driving the valuations in the market. So that's one factor that low interest rates, monetary policy will be a support into equity markets. The second driver that's really driving the markets uh, is the other big battle, as I say in this corner, COVID losers. Who's losing out from this COVID pandemic versus COVID winners? Who's actually winning from this crisis? Um, and that's when you look at the, in the market, what's happening. It's very, it's the, the overall market's up, yes, but what's driving that market? And particularly in the US, if you look at it, and I can't remember the exact numbers, but there were some stats the other day at the top five companies, you know, and that's basically, uh, you know, Facebook, Google, uh, Amazon, Microsoft, um, and uh, one other one in there, Apple, uh, Apple thank you. Um, you know, basically you strip those out, those, you know, the market's up 5%, without those five, it would be down 5% or something. The magnitude of the performance, outperformance from a lot of technology names driving the performance has been astronomical. By the same token, a lot of, and so those are the winners though. They are winning from the COVID. Their earnings numbers were spectacular. They're all beating expectations, earnings growing in a step function. Okay, so there's a huge sort of a, or a number band of winners that are re being repriced as winners. Well, also in the market, there's a lot of companies being priced as losers. They're losing out. And some of that includes, uh, you know, some of the, 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 the commercial real estate, some of the old industrials. Think of the, you know, retail uh, sort of uh, uh, players uh, that are, be, you know, losing out in, into the battle, uh, hotels, airlines, et cetera. So there's been a real um, sort of weeding out of winners and losers from COVID. And that's reflected not just in equity markets, but credit markets. So markets are not being indiscriminate. Okay. And so they really are rewarding the winners. And it's important to realize that the dynamics of who's losing in the economy, it's the people losing the economy are a lot of the small businesses. It's the mom and pop shops. It's the restaurants. It's the service business. It's the hair salons. It's small companies that and, and, and entrepreneurs they're trying to get going they're not listed companies so the biggest losers that are laying out it's as i say it's that small uh sort of uh you know entrepreneurial small shops are shutting down in record numbers and that's where the pain is driving into the economy but it's not being reflected in the stock market because the stock market is of companies that are very different those tech giants are really these are new net you know network uh driven companies these are incredibly profitable, powerful franchises, and they're not trading at crazy valuations. They're not at a huge premium to the rest of the market. So would you rather pay, say, 30 times earnings for an Apple or Microsoft who's growing earnings at a very, very, very strong franchises, or would you rather pay sort of 18, 20 times for a company that you don't know if they're going to be able to grow at all? And so there has been a very big dispersion. And it speaks to, I think, one of these other trends that we're sort of leading to, uh, both this this uh, this uh, COVID crisis, like the world that's going to be, we're emerging on the other side, it's going to be completely different from the world we're leaving. Okay, we're seeing these trends accelerate. Okay, and a lot of these trends they were already in place. So digital disruption, Amazon putting out bricks and mortar retailers, not new. It's been going on for years, but it's accelerating. More and more companies are sort of uh, basically going out of business. We're going to get three years of retail bankruptcies in one, so to speak. So that trend really accelerating. Uh, the, the trend to e-education is going to be a whole new one, accelerating. Online payments, accelerating. So more and more digital disruption that we've been talking about for years, these companies work from home, video conferencing, all the cloud network needed to support what we're exactly doing today. These are going to be long-term structural winners because they're, they're not new, they've been there, but we're adopting them in a fast, far faster pattern than we've been before. So there's a new economy that's going to emerge on the other side. And I can talk about sort of the you know, green dynamics and renewable energies, uh, mobility, what's going on with that, artificial intelligence, 5G. There's a whole whack 
of you know basically technology-driven industries that are were already emerging and gaining share that are basically accelerating and displacing uh, you know a number of older business models or being adopted by existing companies. Okay, so there's a lot to be excited about on the other side of this, but it's going to be a very different economy um, because these trends were in place and this is really proving to be quite an accelerant. The other thing that we're seeing, I think, in this regime change concept, the other side of, uh, of um, 5G, there's other things accelerating as well. One of those things that's accelerating, you know, this whole populism, this whole political and this geopolitical stress that is playing out. John, this isn't going away. This is getting worse. So we're basically, we're moving into a new era. We've actually had a post-war 70-year period of relative broad stability from an economic, uh, sort of from a societal, political, geopolitical perspective. And that's all been in flux. I wrote a piece exactly a year about the geopolitical recession, which was driving some of these trends. It's accelerating. At its core, it really is the rise of China to challenge the US as a global sort of hegemon in terms of economic power, political, military, technological powers. Okay, it's a very different world from the past seven decades that we've seen. Um, and it's, as I say, it's accelerated in that direction. The basically the polarity and the divisiveness that we see in a lot of internal politics in the West. And it's not just in the US. Uh, there's, you know, you see it in Europe with Brexit as well. These are other trends that are also sort of uh, accelerated. We're going to rewrite what the social contract is going to look like. Inequality hasn't worked. The solutions of the past decade, both financial crisis, loose monetary policy type fiscal didn't work. We're not gonna try the same again. It doesn't mean we know what we're gonna do, but in the next coming years, we're gonna be rewriting what that social contract looked like, uh, what the politics, what the geopolitical norms are gonna be. It is, as I say, um, a very determinative point in history that we're gonna to have to stay on top of and we're gonna to have to sort of uh, understand how we navigate through that from an investment perspective. Um, so there's a lot going on, but the bottom line is it's not going to get easy. There's going to be great opportunities to do it and get it right. Interest rate, it's going to be done at interest rates at a very low level because a lot of these dynamics like the social contract, the political decisions will reflect. I mean, we we're talking before, how do you pay for all this debt? Well, a big part of that question boils down to, well, what is, are we going to decide as a society how we're going to pay for that? Okay, if this inequality isn't going to work, and are we going to, does that mean let's just fiscal tightness, austerity, let's tax the rich, pay down the debt, distribute it? There's going to be elements of that. Um, what about running deficits? Okay, right now, as I say, we're, the U.S. is going to run about a 20% of GDP deficit this year. Okay, you know, we're talking sort of, a, you know, four or five trillion dollar deficit funded by a central bank that's printing money. Well, we all know what happened in Germany in terms of, uh, of uh, you know, rampant hyperinflation when you go complete monetary financing. And we're worried about that sort of bogeyman. And that's a potential scenario. But it's not the only one. There's been many examples of monetary financing that do not lead to hyperinflation. Uh, and the ability to run huge deficits, okay? Because people say running huge deficits are going to be a problem because it tips over GDP growth, et cetera. And they're right. When interest rates are 5%, 6%, 100% debt to GDP, I'm spending five or 6% of the output just to pay my interest expense. Yeah. Interest rates are zero. Yeah. How high can that go? So you, you did uh, touch on a little bit there in terms of taxing, uh, uh, et cetera, but um, uh, at, at what point, and I understand this is a, uh, um, Nobody really knows until it happens, but uh, governments, the economies are so fragile right now. How are the governments going to uh, up taxing? Because that's part of the way they're going to pay for it. So uh, are we really looking at something that is going to happen uh, in within this next year? Uh, you know, here in Canada, obviously, people talk about uh, capital gains uh, tax uh, going up. Uh, taxing principal residence sales, um, and, and state taxes, um, you know, those are very specialized, but then there's just regular income tax or, or could it even be a, uh, a specific COVID tax that is supposedly going to be temporary, uh, yeah. like some of these other taxes we've had implemented that have never gone away. Um, yeah. Any thoughts on that? Absolutely. Um, and like the, the trite answer is that's going to be a bit of a political question. 
uh, as opposed to an economic one. Uh, but from the economic outcome, uh, it would be a mistake at this point to start increasing taxes. Um, and the question of how do you pay for this debt is, um, is a challenging one. Uh, but this notion that you have to run fiscal deficits, that you can't run debt, uh, is not exactly true. Because, I mean, in Japan, you've run debt to GDP up to 250% debt to GDP. And in the West, we're getting very concerned that debt's at 100% debt to GDP. Back in the 90s, at 30%, we said it would tip over the economies. Uh, when it got to 50%, we said this is a disaster. Now we're at 100 So we've been, we are scared, tediously scared of debt levels. Um, and it's always been a boogeyman that has never bitten in the past many years. It doesn't mean you can run them up to the tree. You cannot. Uh, but we actually don't know what ultimately causes uh, inflation going forward. When you have this sort of debt levels in the economy, you ultimately have to outgrow them. Okay. And so the first step you do, eventually you're going to have to stop, you know, lesson number one, if you're in a hole, stop digging. Um, okay. So that would be the first step at some point in time, but you can't do it too soon. What we did in the last decade, post the financial crisis, incredibly loose fiscal policy, incredibly loose monetary policy during the crisis, spend a lot, loosen monetary policy. Great. As soon as we moved out of the crisis stage, we must balance the budget. Tight fiscal policy, keep monetary policy loose, balance the budget, pay, got to pay down the debt, the whole Tea Party movement in the US. That has proved to be a disaster and massively exacerbated the sort of inequality issues and the tensions that we're seeing play out in the US uh, is, is a big part of that, uh, that equation. So we know that uh, that formula will not work. Um, and so to try it again, not to say we're not going to try it again, uh, but to try it again and expect a different outcome, it's not going to happen. And if you look at how polarized the economy is and agitated, we're not going to go a decade of, hey, before we say this isn't working. It's going to blow up very fast. Um, and so ultimately, when you're looking at the environment we're in today, where you have a huge deficit of aggregate demand in the economy, and part of it is from technology disruption. If we're trying to run basically surpluses at the household and the government level, if the government uh, and, and business level, if governments don't actually step in and provide aggregate demand support, okay, if they instead reduce it, you're going to get to what is caused, you know, Keynes referred to as the paradox of thrift. As you try to sort of be prudent and pay down the debt, you reduce the demand and you actually shrink the economy and you end up with more debt. And so we're in an environment where we need to get overall aggregate demand in the economy growing, at least at potential. And it's only once you get it above potential that you can even start talking about having an inflationary outcome. And so by tightening fiscal stimulus at a time when you have significantly high unemployment levels and significant slack in the economy, is going to be a downward spiral for economic growth, leaving even slower growth than potential, and ultimately, therefore, higher levels uh, of deficits, because you're not going to have the growth to pay it off. You're going to have higher unemployment expenditures, et cetera. Um, so we don't know the full answer, but governments are going to have to have a much bigger play in the economy going forward than they do today uh, until we can sort of find ways to sort of, and it should be more from a regulatory to stimulate private sector demand. So there's a lot of discussion on there, MMT, et cetera, you know, and Trump against the socialism side of things like that. Just because the government needs to stimulate growth doesn't mean it has to do it itself. So a lot of variables. I do think that drives more spending in infrastructure, green infrastructure. There are areas that you can look around the globe that are woefully lacking uh, in terms of, uh, of, of, of demand. You know, parts of North America look third world if you look at their infrastructure capacity. Uh, and if you actually go and look at the growth drivers of China over the course of the past, and I've spent 30 years in this business, John, following China and New Asia all through that, amongst other areas, uh, that growth miracle was really driven by aggressive infrastructure spending supported to allow and support faster growth going forward. So if infrastructure is a bottleneck, you do, I mean, there are ways we can reduce bottlenecks and increase efficiency of the economy. The challenge for more government spending is trying to get smart government spending. Therein lies the real problem uh, with uh, with uh, with fiscal spending. That, um, that could be a whole different podcast, and uh, <laughs> that, that would be called the podcast of frustration on that one. Uh, and 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 to me, it's at the crux of the problem. But you, yeah. you, we're going to need fiscal support for some time. 
if it boils down into a, uh, a class warfare on inequality of taxing the rich, that just shrinks the overall economy and exacerbates the position, and it will be a more violent outcome over, over several years to sort of resolve some of these issues. So it's going to be, as I say, how we rewrite that social contract, that's a decision we as Canadians have to make. That's a decision in the U.S. they have to make. Uh, that's a decision in Europe they have to make. We're unfortunately not let, you know, we're not blessed with great political leadership, uh, in my opinion. Um, but that, as I say, different podcast. But it's at a time when that is, these are issues we are going to be wrestling with in the coming, uh, in the coming decade. Okay, so let me pull it back to uh, a little uh, closer out of politics and into uh, right your your realm. Uh, so when I'm dealing with uh, client families, uh, often uh, we are dealing with multi generational. So we have grandparents, parents, kids. Uh, obviously, grandparents and sometimes parents. Um, they're going back to your comments about income, cash flow. Uh, they're at that stage where, where that's what they're looking for. So if you're saying, uh, okay, reality is a 10-year government Canada bond is less than uh, half a percent paying uh, right now, uh, um, that's a million dollars. Uh, you're, you're getting five grand uh, a year off of that. That, yeah. doesn't, that doesn't float the boat. Yeah, um, that does not. So what is it, uh, are we just giving up on income or uh, what is it that uh, you guys yeah. are doing? What do you see to uh, uh, alleviate that issue? Yeah, John, that's the most important question. I think facing just about every Canadian investor and saver uh, and certainly those uh, in looking to live off their savings and invest them going forward. Because um, you're right, the politics and stuff, it will matter day-to-day -day fluctuations. We're talking now, what am I investing to get over the next 10 years, 15 years, 20 years? Not what the market's going to do next month, next week, next day. Stretch out to the long term. Government bonds can't provide. They've been the biggest bull market over the course of the past 40 years, 18% to zero, and the game is over. Okay? We've developed an entire industry that says you need lots of government bonds in your portfolio because they provide stability and they provide income. Well, they did, but they don't anymore. If you had actually just owned government bonds in the 30 years before that, okay, in the post-war period, which ironically was when we were trying to monetize the war debts. The last time we had massive debts build up and they ran financial repression strategies of keeping interest rates below uh, the level of inflation. If you just sat and held a government bond portfolio, you lost two thirds of your purchasing power. So protecting people's capital from inflation and earning a, a reasonable yield and cash flow to yield off is the biggest challenge we face. And there are no easy answers. And the kind of go-to solution of the past 40 years will be a disaster going forward. And so I think I have, I have sort of three simple investment rules, one of which touches on this. But the three rules are going forward, you're gonna to have to be active in your asset allocation. It's gonna be a volatile movie, lots of moving pieces going on. So someone, you have to partner with people who can active, actively manage your asset mix, exposure, et cetera. The second one is if you need growth in your portfolio, well, buy growth assets, growth companies. Find those structural growth areas in technology and healthcare uh, in these new emerging industries, green industries, et cetera, that there are great opportunities to invest in this new emerging economy going forward for the growth side of your portfolio. And then the, the one that matters you're asking enough, if you need income, Okay, if I need 5% income, then buy income yielding assets. It's a really simple concept. If you need income, buy assets that are yielding income. And then you ask yourself, do government bonds give the test? Well, you just answered that. Okay, if I, if I sort of you know, need uh, you know, $30,000 a year in income, and I'm investing in government bonds at 50 basis points, uh, yeah, that's a lot. Of, I, don't, I don't have basically 30 uh, sort of million dollars to sort of start you know, putting in there or whatever it is. Works you don't? Exactly, uh, the number of millions of dollars you have to get it. So if you need income, buy income yielding assets. And going forward, you're going to have to source your income from different locations. And more of that income is going to have to come from equity markets. Okay, and when we look at equity stocks within Signature, we break that down. Like, it's not just, you know, in, in bonds, I have government bonds, I have corporate bonds, investment grade, I have high yield credit lending, small, medium-sized companies. And by the way, those are still some sources for income. 
and high yield credit, et cetera. So those are, there are, are places you can get it in the fixed income world further out the risk curve. Uh, then in income, everyone looks at equities as one class of equities and they're not. So we look at there's a, you know, income equities to us is, if I want income and, and try to buy income yielding equities, well, real, what we call real assets, real estate and infrastructure. These are long uh, sort of duration, long generation uh, sort of assets that yield strong cash flows. Okay, and so those type of assets you want to have in your portfolios. Large pension plans have been moving here for years. They'll buy up the toll roads, the 401, et cetera, the ports, uh, commercial real estate. Um, so those are places where you can still find companies that are paying you three, four, five percent dividend yields in the, in the basic real estate infrastructure asset, is, and it's based off long-term concessions, and they tend to grow over time. Not exciting growth, not Amazon-type growth. You're not paying for that sort of uh, uh, roller coaster, but they're going to grow at, say, what if they're growing at 3 4% a year? Well, that means if it's paying me 4% and it's growing at 4% a year and inflation is 2%, I'm now getting, well, A, that 4% is a real rate of return and it's growing over time because you have to protect your portfolio against inflation as well, which may pick up. And so getting those dividends from assets that are like to grow, the cash flow yield should grow over time, not going to be linear, it'll be a little bit more bumpy along the way. Great source of income, let alone better tax treatment uh, on many of them. Uh, but it's a, a way to sort of get good income with inflation protection. Fixed income, by the way, the word fixed tells you it's not going to increase with inflation. You'll lose money if inflation does pick up. So it's very, they're very dangerous to hold in an inflationary period. Um, so that's one area. And you have to realize that it's going to be a bumpier ride. Yeah. It is going to bounce around. There's volatility is going to matter. But you know what? If you're talking about you know, money that you plan to live off for the next decade, the next 20, and if you retire at 65, you have a 30-year horizon, even if you're not looking into generational. It's not short time. So how do I generate, compound my rate of return over that time uh, at a reasonable real rate of return above the rate of inflation. And to you, for that person, the short-term volatility in the market is absolutely irrelevant. And yet we focus on it incessantly. Okay. We define it as the sole measure of risk and it is irrelevant to the risk of the client. What matters to them is not generating that sufficient rate of return over time. And so there's no easy answer. It was great when you can get it from government bonds that paid you five, you didn't have to worry. Today that option's not available. And if you, and as a 2% is the break even rate, um, because that's kind of what inflation has been for the past 30 years. So think of that as a benchmark. So even though I've got a great GIC, it's paying me too for the next five years, you've just locked your money in for a zero rate of return. You will not reach your goals over the next 10, 20, 30 years if you're locking in money from that time frame. You need to work, and I said, there's no easy answer. You need to find an advisor, work with an advisor that can help you navigate this, protect you from the volatility, and understand that, as I say, either ignore it or embrace it as an opportunity. The big irony is most many clients define volatility as the risk. As a professional money manager, I see it as an opportunity. Yeah. We spent billions in March when the market sold off. That was, that was like Christmas to us. Um, and so there's something wrong in a lot of our sort of rules of thumb in the industry that we have to help clients through and protect them from, hey, don't make something stupid. And like no one lost money in March they didn't sell their assets or if they're playing with leverage, there could be some things, but if you're basically in a, in a buy and hold mode, you don't sell, they came back. Yeah. yeah. So I think looking for income, if you need income, buy income, there are sources to get it. They're not in the fixed income space. It's going to be more equity. Uh, so it's going to be more bouncing around, but there's big parts of the equity market that you can buy that are income focused. And as I say, should give you a, a decent cash flow and protect you against inflation going forward. So it's thinking differently is required. Yes, thank you. Uh, uh, you. You touch on, uh, again, a subject that can be uh, part of a, a whole other discussion, and, and that is just clients making sure, and advisors making sure that their uh, clients really understand that uh, uh, volatility is the price you pay for a good return. And yeah. if you actually have your um, uh, ducks in a row, uh, we talk about boxes of money, uh, and you have your short-term money set aside, your current uh, dollars set aside, your medium-term dollars set aside, your long-term dollars don't matter. 
uh, in terms of volatility. You don't care that they go up and down. Matter of fact, you want them to, uh, because as you said, um, it's when things drop, it's Christmas. It's, it's things go on sale. Uh, as uh, Canadians uh, always used to remember, uh, and we always used to call it, it's, it's Bay Days. Uh, yeah. <laughs> things gone, have gone on sale. So uh, Drummond, I, I, I really appreciate your, uh, your time and your insight. There was a whole lot that we covered there and I know that I, I just opened it up and uh, uh, left it wide open and, and you touched on some uh, very, very poignant uh, uh, pieces and what clients are thinking about and asking us questions about. So very much appreciate your time. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, I did notice, however, throughout that, all you were able to do was get in a quick sip of water. So now you can sit down, relax, have your glass of wine and uh, cheers, my friend. Uh, I, I appreciate you doing this and my clients appreciate it. And we will have you back on again uh, in, uh, in due time, I'm sure. John, I appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. And uh, as I say, hopefully we get to sort of toast in real time soon. Thank you very much. And yeah, take care. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks again, Drummond. Wow, there's a whole lot of knowledge and expertise there in just that one man. He has a team of 50 plus behind him, and we have many partnerships just like that that serve our clients. Looking forward to our next video podcast. Not all of them will be on markets. That's only a piece of what we do. Future video podcasts will explain more in depth what a family office is, and we'll have speakers on estate, tax, business, corporate structure, philanthropic, business succession and exit planning. And if that hasn't made you yawn, I actually find it exciting. We will try and get our sleep expert on as well. Our goal is to educate and engage you, our audience. To that end, do you have any questions or comments for us or topics you'd like to hear more about? Email us at sanafamilyoffice@asante.com. If you would like to know more about a unique service offering for business owners and affluent families, visit our website at sanafamilyoffice.com or email us at sanafamilyoffice@asante.com. That's S-A-N-A, family office at Asante, A-S-S-A-N-T-E dot com. Until next time, Asante Sana. Hi, I'm Trevor Beggs from Sana Family Office, and thanks for listening to John Lawson and the Wealth Wisdom Podcast. Here are the necessary disclosures. Asante Capital Management is a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. This material is provided for general information and is subject to change without notice. Every effort has been made to compile this material from reliable sources. However, no warranty can be made as to its accuracy or completeness. Before acting on any of the above, please make sure to see a professional advisor for individual financial advice based on your personal circumstances. The opinions expressed here are not necessarily those of Asante Capital Management. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the Wealth Wisdom Podcast.